Criminal Magic, Chapter 20. Friday, 12.53, GMT-5. If wishes were horses, beggars were dried. A certain discipline is required in order to keep your hand still when insects are buzzing around your head. If you don't offer recognition, many insects will simply ignore you, but maintaining an unruffled front is particularly difficult when a steady stream of creatures posts up directly within the ear. Coordinator has to remind herself that reacting to such irritations seems only to serve as a magnet. Nonetheless, it is everything she can do to keep from waving her hands in a constant frenzy of motion around her head to hold the swarming creatures at bay. Hate bugs. Fucking hate them, she thinks. In the near distance, Coordinator can see Luz and Answer sitting together in the shade of a broad canopied tree. She wonders idly what those two are on about. Neither one of them ever seems to raise a hand to brush off offending flies. What is that? More of the mystic shit? Her musings are interrupted once again by the momentary visual vibration of her contact screen. So you want to tell me why you cut us off? She begins abruptly. I'm sure we've known each other long enough at this point for you to know I have my reasons, Kieran says. Is Ovi with us, or is that little chat a private affair? Just you and I, he replies, just you and I. Are you able to talk? Coordinator smiles to herself as she sweeps her eyes over the impromptu boneyard that surrounds her. Uh, yeah, we're definitely alone. Her tone is almost a hiss. So you've got your reasons. Want to tell me what they are? Kieran's sigh signals a release of exasperation. The sound travels across the ethers like a subtle, low scratching. I interrupted you because you were about to make a very controversial commitment, and I needed time to consider the advisability of your suggestion. What? I was just about to say you could get this half-dead skinny over to Portland in no time. You, of all people, must realize, Kieran says cautiously, that for me to authorize an alliance of convenience between the collective and any unaligned Newtown community would be more than controversial at this point. I can't take such a position without considering the ramifications attached, so I took the liberty of creating the space necessary to weigh the possibilities in a less pressing environment. There are many things happening in the political world right now, and what you are involved with is not central to all of them. So, are you done scolding me? Coordinator's laconic tone is unavoidably acid. Look, Karen, I know it's your call, but it sure as hell seems to me that working to maintain the status quo is a slow-motion disaster. Remember when I was younger and you used to talk to me about the collectives being an example of an emergent phenomenon? Yes, Karen says simply. Well, the new towns are a new emergence, and if we're not smart enough to co-op their dislocation and turn it to a positive for us, then I think we're done for. The Hindu groups will keep hitting us harder and harder until all that's left is chasm at the top and nothing underneath. Pretty soon, will look like one of those collapsing corporations from back in the nines. Some bandwidth provider that's all air and no there. I think you can see the future just as well as I can. We both know that majoritarian movements often become everything they're set up to oppose. From my point of view, and I know I'm not alone here, we're just another mammoth bureaucracy blundering along with no real objective other than to justify our own existence. How did that happen? 
How long do you think the Hindu boys or the locals are going to go on planking for another deadweight political scam? Business as usual, if I remind you, was the inefficiency the collective used to launch itself in the beginning. That crap is what brought us environmental disaster and forced the world into the adaptation mode simply because profit calculations outweighed any long-term valuation of the species' future. Remember? Personally, I am inclined to agree. Karen's tone is funereal. But the open question is how the rank and file will react as we begin to repoliticize our process. There are risks. You of all people, <laughs> coordinator snorts, who was it that preached to me the gospel of long-range vision for the Charter Congress during my whole adolescence? Short-term thinking is fucking disaster. The collective was all about taking risks. Now we've relegated all understanding of risk to some cube farm of math geeks who've reduced the process to statistical and probability analysis? Shit. You and the rest of the leadership know better. But things have gotten cozy. House has gotten fat. I see your point, but coordinator is in no mood for equivocation. But nothing. We're not the emergent force anymore. But we do have a structure in place, and emergence needs to be guided. Chasm may be full of planners, head-in-the-sky ideologues, and theory-spewing poofs, but I'd like to believe that the majority of them have not lost their sense of that original impetus for the, what the collective was. That vision is intact, isn't it? I'm sure. I'm sure, Kieran says after a brief silence from his end. Hold on, just a moment. The line goes into a sound vault hold. Coordinator sits on a large rock, watching workers come and go. A brief but intense wave of sadness washes over her. This is a rarity. Her head suddenly feels so heavy, she drops it into her hands. Kieran comes back on the line. Coordinator, he says. Still here, she mumbles dejectedly. I'm going to authorize you to extend all relevant assistance to Mr. Gray and the Portland Newtown resistance. I request only that you stay in close contact with the House and keep in mind the extreme importance of your actions at this juncture. And I assure you, I will be sharing your thoughts with some of my fellows on the board. Tipping point, coordinator says. Karen lets out a pleased laugh. I am always reassured to find that you do indeed pay attention on occasion, he says. My faith in your abilities is high. Please stay on the line and I will ask Ovi to facilitate your transportation. Best of luck to you. Ovi is on the line immediately. By my count, you will need space for three adults and one other. Is that correct? Count on you to have all the facts on hand, coordinator says. Optimal scenario will involve one of our pilots, Ovi goes on. Do you think you'll be able to obtain transportation from your present location as far as Cartagena? I'll have to check on that to confirm, but I don't see it being a major barrier, coordinator says. Excellent. I'll arrange for the VTOL transport directly from Cartagena to Portland on a chasm shuttle. That should work, coordinator says. We'll want full comm structures and weaponry requirements on my specs when we arrive. No problem there, Ovi says. I'll estimate arrival in Cartagena sometime within the next 12 hours. Let me know if you'll be outside that window. Excellent as always, Ovi. I'll be talking to you. She hauls herself up and begins walking across the blocky till of the opening towards where Answer and Luz are lazing. Time to hook up with my fringe associates, she tells herself. At least I know they work out in a pinch. She tugs at the soaking mat of her blouse. Shit. For the first time in years, 
she finds herself actually looking forward to being in the Northwest. Saturday, 10.03, GMT-5. Descending is the most treacherous part of the journey to Chavin de Huantar, but also the most interesting. Answer stares off toward the far wall of the terraced canyon. The ragged chop of his emphysematic fiber's breath, the coral-hued halo ringing the sun, foretelling rain that will probably never arrive, road noise boiling up, rising with eye-stinging dust to clog the air inside the passenger compartment of the short-axled Russian four-wheel drive. Answer feels the excitement swelling his heart. This was the right decision. Soon, I will see for myself. Choosing a path is not something you do, Luz told him back in the burial ground. You may choose to begin walking toward one thing and with each step find yourself approaching another. Is this wrong? You have seen it. You have seen the place you are going. Her hand rose, rolling away from her lap like a dry leaf in a light wind. Answer felt the door to the resistance room of his willingness thrown open by her dervish spell. The others sure as hell wouldn't be happy about it, but this was the time for him to be alone with his path, alone with his choices. The destination was never in doubt. A bus is cramming itself past the truck, teetering on the outside edge of the lane with its windows thrown wide to accommodate the protruding body parts of compressed passengers. The distraction of noise and color severs Answer's hold on the moment, allowing his memory to take him in its own direction. Smoke adhered to a light wind, spreading an eye-stinging haze over the burial ground. Answer could make out coordinator on the other side of the field. She saw what happened, that much was sure. But did she realize what she'd witnessed? Answer could see only his own unsatisfied curiosity. The shade cast by the banyan tree offered little refreshment from the oppressive humidity. Luz's voice intruded on his distraction. He turned his attention toward the slight woman, bowing to the absolute of her being and its immediate influence. We have always known of your arrival, she said. For more than 3,000 years, we women have waited, and my family has been dreaming you here. What you do with what you are is your choice, and we accept that. But you must know that your coming has been foreseen, no matter what you make of it. What are we talking about here, Luz? Answer asked, shoving a fingernail into the girth of a weed, splitting the green tube down the middle. Since that first time with you back in the Galleria, when we were kids, it's been obvious that there was some connection between you and Jaguar. Ah, you are mistaken, Answer. Luz interjects with a dismissive shake of her head. We seers of Chavin de Huantar have no connection to Father Cat. You do. It is you we have seen. You we have expected to come to us. You who must find the course of the path. Only you know what we must do. Most of our work, my past, theirs, whatever becomes of it is between you and Jaguar. We dreamers have hopes, nothing more than that. Answer's exasperation, verging on annoyance, rose with his tone. Look, twice in less than a month, I've had some, man, I don't know if it's a thing or a being or what the fuck it is, but I've been fused with this, used by some power that is absolutely the essence of that big fucking cat we met here over 20 years ago in the belly of the pyramid. But that doesn't mean, are you afraid, Answer? 
Her question lay resonating between them, charging the air with an energy which encouraged Answer to hold his breath rather than inhale the meaning of her message. Saturday, 10.47, GMT-5. Luz observes coordinator as she works over the facilities manager at the airport, nodding, supplicant, offhandedly plucking at one of the tin frame pictures of an adolescent child from the dusty desktop. Luz can see her lips moving. How old? Coordinator asks. How sweet. From Luz's distant perspective, it's quite interesting to see how this powerful woman exercises her unique mix of authority and charisma. On the flight from Chiscal to Cartagena, coordinator became someone else. She applied makeup and costume, aging herself and adapting a completely different posture and set of mannerisms. Luz shuddered unconsciously as she watched, thinking of that other identity changer that came on. I took this costuming idea off an old picture of Mother Teresa, coordinator said as she admired herself in the handheld mirror. She looked over at Luz, only to encounter a blank look. Ah, she was a famous Christian back in the 8th South Asia side. Very old, very just saint, you know, they said. Always real plain like this. She smoothed down the wrinkles in the skirt. There now, we look suitably humble. Just a hump in the back and a little tremor in the hands and excellent. For this audience, she is Elaine Duval from the Institute of Tropical Disease Studies. The woman standing 10 meters away in the shabby, badly lit customs office is no longer the domineering person that Luz has come to know. Instead, there stands a palled, stoop-shouldered old woman who is bearing as testimony to a grueling devotion, a verifiable and wickedly believable character. Her gray bun of hair and simple clothing clearly forewarn anyone paying even the slightest attention not to expect much of anything from a person whose austere aspect so clearly indicates a total lack of interest in the material world. The nameless, khaki-clad official in front of her squirms slightly in the confines of his thinly upholstered chair. He is uneasy with people like this, this woman, her type. They're so damnably worthy that even he, a chiseled narco, feels a bit guilty impeding their free movement in and out of the country. Goddamn Catholic schooling. Besides, there is no personal gain to be exacted by delaying them. Such do-gooders never have anything of value to take. As he consults his watch, he thinks that this time would be better invested shaking down the two Natalie-dressed Japanese businessmen who his assistants are sweating in the adjoining interrogation room. The half kilo of smart drugs his men implanted on them will surely justify a stiff, albeit informal, penalty. He drums impatient fingers on the desktop. Yes, senora. Of course. Certainly. Only these two others, and we will be done. He can't wait to be done with her. Luz pays no attention to the carton labeled Warning, Biohazard, Contaminated Human Remains. It is her part to play, the grieving sister of a man cut down by a rare and highly contagious disease in the center of his life, shattered and silenced by death. No point in calling attention to the obvious. It is, after all, an ageless drama. A dead man in his kin awaiting transport to some obscure home place. In this case, the move will be on a Medstat Airbus provided by the charitable services arm of the collective. Other passengers, unlucky enough to be stranded on the shoals of officialdom, boil around the waiting area, giving the box and its grieving companion a wide berth. 
The risk of accidental contamination deters even the most sympathetic among them from approaching Luz as she trains her eyes upon the manager's office where she can see the official, now slumped, defeated in his seat. He is beaten, ready to surrender to the inexorable pressure of the good soul in front of him. It won't be long now. To Luz, coordinator seems a source of remarkable energy as her false self weaves a spell of liberating deception. This is doubly interesting to Luz, considering coordinator's obvious, nearly disdainful lack of belief in any spiritual pathway. Luz has no prior experience with a person who displays attributes of power and heart, but lacks some talismanic linkage with a spirit source. It is clear to her that this woman has made her commitment to power she can derive by using the resources of the mechanical world. But this is a source of power that Luz cannot understand by any intellectual or spiritual measure. She simply accepts what is. Luz can feel a coordinator's power with her own, intact and undiminished. She rocks in place in her chair with a hint of satisfaction smiling across her face. Things can be good, even when they were beyond understanding. Saturday, 1323, GMT minus six. Coordinator is looking out the window of the transport, ferrying them northward, staring at the clouds. Boring. How many times can you try to find animal shapes in the sky to entertain yourself? Four more hours of this? Should have downloaded a book. She turns to look at Luz, allowing her expression to reflect a pinch of annoyance. Your friend really has a knack for pissing people off, she says. There we are, ready to go, trying to get our semi-dead pal prepped to travel, and answer just up and bails. Dust this off like unbelievable. Luz takes a sip of the bottled water the flight attendant handed her when they boarded. This doesn't really sound like an invitation to conversation. Coordinator seems interested in expressing her feelings. Luz looks back at her and nods, but stays quiet. Coordinator takes the nod as permission to continue railing. Know what really burns me? That I give even the slightest shit where he's going. Not that I would if it was up to me, but like it or not, we're a team, right? I mean... You stay tight with your team, and that's how your team stays alive in this game. But no, this team's got a fucking freelancer. Did he tell you where he was going? She searches Luz's face for any hint of an answer either way. Right, not like you'd tell me if he did, Coordinator says. I don't even know why I'm talking to you. Coordinator rummages through the seat back pocket, looking for anything at all to take her mind off the cloying boredom. After a moment, Luz clears her throat. Answer told me nothing, she says. The words are studied, coolly enunciated. She sees no reason coordinators should be frustrated if that can be avoided. Yeah, well, that fits. What a piece of work. Freelancers just piss me off. Why, Luz asked. Her face is innocence and unmotivated by anything else. She seems truly mystified at the force being exerted over something she sees as insignificant, and she knows the question is likely to break the momentum of her traveling companion's anger. Coordinator swings her legs inward so she can face Luz head on. Why do they piss me off? She demands. Because these people don't give a rat's ass about anyone but themselves. Freelancers are a verifiable type in my business, and it's not like he's the first one I've run into. We had a goddamn plan. Her voice sputters off. 
she can see by the perplexed look on Luz's face that she has lost her audience a bit. Let me put it this way, Luz, she says, taking a quick drink of water. Here we are, you and me. We think there's a very good chance that Kohler and some really evil shit have hooked up. Even Answer agrees with that. All of a sudden, just as we're getting saddled up, ready to boost, he blows us off, disappears. Classic freelancer move. They need you? Fine. You're covered. You need them? Sorry. Fuck you. It must be important, Luz says. He left a note saying he would meet us in Portland. If he said it, he will do it. He will meet us. The statement invites no response. Coordinator starts to say something, but realizes that she has completely lost her usual dispassionate detachment and falls silent. She fixes on the shaman's face. Luz might know answer better than any of them at this point, but Coordinator can't escape the sensation that his responsibility and reliability won't ever be up to her standards. She turns away from Luz, back toward the window. When all else fails, get flexible. She closes her eyes momentarily, feeling a knot in her abdomen. She knows that in order to have it dissipate, she will have to let go of her need to maintain control. She looks back at Luz, who's just sitting there, about as excited as a carrot in a crisper. Best solution at the moment, coordinator thinks. Let it ride. Saturday, 1540, GMT minus eight. Coordinator looks out the window just in time to catch sight of the broad splay of yellow alluvial silt that signs the fanning delta of the Colorado River, where its toothless mouth opens, discording fresh water into the Sea of Cortez. Coordinator remembers idly that old Margaret Mead quote about a small group of committed folks changing the world and chuckles to herself. Before November 2nd, 2023, no drop of fresh water from the Colorado had entered the Gulf of California for almost four years. She squirms around to get a better look at the face of devastation. First, it was a long and punishing fistfight over water between the U.S. and the Federated States of Mexico. A hundred million northerners against 15 million impoverished desert-dwelling southies. No contest. It was a schematic of the food chain. Those higher up on the pike suck what they need, the rest go dry. That's all, and it all changed in a matter of 34 minutes one Sunday morning. Glen Canyon was the first to go. The man-made wall restraining the runoff of the White River, the Muddy, the Virgin, the Topak Wash, Meadow Valley Wash were jammed down to a plug in a low point, gashed in the foot of the Muddy Mountains. Unseasonably heavy rainfall up country had the reservoir pretty full. And when the first series of explosions went off, its collapse was all the more certain. The charges took a rough V-shape out of the center body of the dam, and the water itself did the rest. All the drones and surveillance equipment plugged into every human communication device had failed to detect the crew that managed to do that job. The coordinator keeps looking, craning her head to get a view of the desert, where it became a lake. Isla Montague. That first sabotage blow set things in motion. Since that day, nothing remained to obstruct the free flow of the mighty river's exodus into the Gulf. Yuma, Ehrenberg, Parker, Lake Havasu City, all gone. Funny how London Bridge lasted all those centuries on the Thames, only to be airlifted to a desert where a great flood would erase it from living memory in an instant. Within ten minutes of the first strike, similar massive charge attacks were made on the Hoover, Davis, Parker, and Laguna dams. The first three were just plain destroyed within minutes. 
Down at the lagoon of the Greens who teched the job got blown up before they made it to the bow of the dam, and all that blasted was to throw up a siege that killed some retire folks, squatting in mobile homes along the shore. This failure didn't matter. In less than three hours, the entire face of the Colorado River Basin was changed forever, as the largest flood of deliberately detained water ever known plunged down the river, devastating every human construction in its path. The reach of floodwaters was immense, As the tide crested over Blythe, it broke all the historic dikes and refreshed the long, dry Salton lakes at Ford and Palin. In a single stroke, the river restored. Ruin was visited on a vast region, and the future of Los Angeles, Las Vegas, San Diego, Phoenix was diminished to as long as the period of time would take for each metropolis's residents to realize that they could no longer live there. The exodus of 23 saw nearly 30 million people shot into the thin atmosphere of a newly radicalized desperation economy. The National Guard, Army, and Governments of America, Mexico, and Consolidated Canada barely managed to salvage society. Mortality was high, really high. Vast tracts of land in what had been known as the market basket of the world were suddenly out of the food production business. Starvation in the land of plenty. No one could really believe it until the famine started and past famine lay disease and social collapse. The army went from being a large-scale transportation, salvage, and policing force to a full-time martial law unit. Large-scale gatherings of the dispossessed were considered tantamount to a massing of rebels and were treated summarily. It was gruesome messy. All the western new towns were at least some degree the result of River Day. Fifteen years earlier, new towns had only been common in Brazil, China, India. Overnight, A huge migratory wave moved into the Northwest. It wasn't like people had a choice. They just went where the water flowed. Portland, San Francisco, Reading, Seattle, Vancouver, all were overwhelmed as populations quadrupled and more practically overnight. Engineering immediately failed for sanitation, water safety, fuel distribution, and health. It got worse and stayed that way for a decade. The ecotizers that did the River Day bombings were from a particularly radical sect, the kind with the Save the Earth, Commit Suicide bumper stickers on their luggage, and they took the message seriously. Although all the mainstream eco-groups, even some of the Tajers, disassociated themselves from the bombings, the general public pinned the blame squarely on them. Anyone vaguely identified as sympathetic met a hard end at the hands of mobs. It was years before the ecotage groups started making a comeback The Greens went mainstream to survive, and history knows how that kind of alliance works out. California's Central Valley slips below. Coordinator can tell if it's the big valley by following the cement spinal column of the canal up its gut. But before River Day, you'd fly over the engineered watercourse and would shine up at you like a glittering ribbon. But it's been 12 years now since it went dry. Pumps blown, huge runs burned and shattered by the Tajers. No more Big Valley, no more feeding the world, no more miracle of engineering. Zero. No more San Diego. Mostly abandoned, just like Phoenix and Las Vegas. The only people still down there are the ones with small desalinators. That technology should have worked, but when it got tried at scale, it just ended up burning the ocean. Fine for the people, but not good for the fish. The Federals put an end to it, except for the super-rich in L.A., They had to stay there so they could make the world feel better about what happened by turning it into entertainment. Coordinator leans her head against the bulkhead of the aircraft. For some reason, the biblical tale of the Messiah in the desert arrives in her mind's eye. 
Proof at least some folks can live without food for 30 days. Uh-huh, she muses to herself as she watches the yellowed hills over Fresno disappear under blankets of Thule fog. So where did he get the water? It's one of those questions that has always made her think the whole thing was bunk. A good story should get the details right now. Passing over the dry wash of the overburdened San Francisco Bay, coordinator recalls reading that as many as two million people died in the troubles following River Day. Two million? Most folks put the number at twice that. But those people weren't really in control of the media. She doesn't expect anyone will ever know the real tally now. The Sacramento Delta, now no more than a fractured mud flat most of the year, swings by below as coordinator closes her eyes to seal out the glare of the surrounding yellowed flatlands, now overrun by weeds. Sunday, 4.16, GMT-5. In the hours before dawn, Answer makes his way through the portal of the pyramid. On hands and knees, he retraces the route to the Galleria de Ofrendas, as if he has made the trip so frequently he could navigate it, eyes closed. If there is a starting point, it begins the instant Answer sets his palms on the cold, flat work of the duct leading to his destination. Drawn on by unwavering certainty, he makes his way into the bowels of the building, allowing the darkened Camino to reveal itself to his dark blind eyes. Now left, a short incline, right, two steps, down, careful, a crosswind fairy sense of water and a wave of pollen, straight here. Finally, he crawls through the entryway. Light is unnecessary. This is the place. He can see as clearly as if there were candles illuminating every nuance of the burnished walls. The room shines a wet black. Answer strips off his shirt, bunches it, and sits down on the bundle with his legs crossed. He does not close his eyes. Waiting is all that is required. After an indeterminate time, there is a distinct rise in temperature. Answer takes off the rest of his clothes. A human shape leaks into the penumbra of weak non-illumination from the encircling darkness. The figure approaches on hands and knees. This man is also naked. Slight shadows catch on the indent between his ribs. His breathing is barely audible as he leans in close to Answer, craning his neck, sniffing the air, practically touching Answer's cheek. His nostrils flare, his eyes appear black with the absence of color, betraying nothing of what he reads in the aura of sweat and emotion encircling Answer's body. The intruder retreats a bit and sits back on his haunches. His image wavers, hovering at the limit of believability like a projection of menace, the promise of barely restrained murder on the frontier of the lightless void. Who are you? the visitor asks. Answer gives the only possible reply under the circumstances. I don't know. Interesting, the figure says and nods slightly. An honest answer is a wise choice. And you? Answer says. I am... Then comes something that is neither light nor sound, but a sensation Answer feels in his bones. It is the feeling of certainty, and Answer is imbued with a tremendous sense of immediate knowing. You see, the naked man says. Answer knows. He does not realize or cognitively quantify, but he knows what has been projected. Yes, and why are you here? For the same reason you are, the man says in a disappointed tone of voice. Look at yourself sitting naked in this place, waiting for what? Can you see yourself? 
As this last thought reaches answer, the naked man becomes an image of answer himself, an image stripped of its humanity, reduced to a pixel processed reproduction. It leans in and repeats the question, can you? Answer takes in a deep breath, then exhales slowly. I am not food, he says. The naked figure disappears from the space. Tell me what this is about, Answer says loudly. The volume of the demand shatters the quiet of the place. The echoes reverberate down unmeasured tunnels and soak into the walls of the mysterious citadel. Suddenly, the solid rock walls of the Galleria seem to shudder, warping and bowing. The ceiling sags, draping down to the floor like a cake jarred by an unfortunate misstep. Where there was an absence of light, now there is a blinding incandescence. Have you forgotten? Answer asks, looking around. Tell me. His eyes remain closed, but he can see the fractal aspects of the room collapsing into a chaos of lost form. The space is folding in on him, melting. It approaches on all sides, threatening to touch, absorb, destroy him. From within the torch-like luminescence of the cavern comes a single word. Forgotten? Answer opens his eyes, drawing in all his will. That you are to serve, he says. The illumination dims to a tolerable level revealing a great cat lying on its belly. His enormous head is set between paws, whose awful talons remain hidden in their sheaths. His breathing is deep, restful. Answer is unmoved, more curious than disturbed. Why have you been using my body, he asks. For some reason, it seems perfectly ordinary to be talking this way to the massive jaguar lying at his feet. Your need was clear, the jaguar says. I did what I am bound to do. But who gave you permission to use me to do it? Little brother, it is not for me to say which of you is able to use my help. Most of you cannot. I have waited for you. It is you who command, as before. And who am I? What were you waiting for? Answer finds his hand, reaching for the cat's head. You are from the frog woman's dream. The return of the... In place of a word... There is a shocking montage of images depicting warriors in bloody battle, the gargantuan cat whose form overlays the erect body of a naked man, legions of black birds raining down on men in battle, an eclipse of blood over the sun. From the day of singing, from before the forgetting and the seizure of this place by the Cayman, since the battle to reclaim Shuamug, they have seen you, and I have waited to serve to serve the one who knows it is my work. I can only do my work when one like you summons me. My time is now because you are here to declare it. Answer reaches out, idly stroking the blunt prow of the cat's nose, drawing the backside of a fingernail across the cool black wetness, gently caressing the most sensitive of sights. The jaguar purrs. Is this a dream? Answer realizes that he has been holding his breath. He experiments with the idea, tries to inhale, but cannot. He doesn't even feel really the need. All of your world, all you know and think of fondly or with regret or impatience, says the cat. That is your dreaming world. Dreaming is what there is of you. Can you tell me why I'm here? Answer asks. A sound, something like the mixture of chuckling and coughing, <laughs> bleats out of the massive mouth. The jaguar licks his chops. What question is that? 
I am here to serve. You are here to challenge me to do as I am told. The sound of amusement comes again. You are clever, the jaguar says. That is good. You will need that virtue, among others, for your work. So what is my work? Answer drops his hand into his own lap, a sudden and tremendous sense of lassitude soaking his body. I will summon the others, Jaguar says, and suddenly is simply gone. The rejection seeps through Answer's consciousness with the ease of air passing through a door, and Galleria returns to its pitch-black state. Wait, Answer commands, but the order means nothing. His pleading tone bounces around the bleak emptiness of the stone room, filling now only by freezing air and the apparition of a naked man who sits alone, apparently engaged in a conversation with a pile of his own discarded clothing. By the time he emerges from the crawlway, sunlight is waning in its control of the heavens and his need for sleep is overwhelming. As he crawls under a sheet in the room he's rented, Ansh's only real thoughts are focused on how grateful he is that he didn't consult any medicinal plants before going into the pyramid. Somehow he's sure that that decision would have resulted in another set of bones being found in the Galleria de Ofrendas. Please join us next week for Chapter 21 of Criminal Magic. Thank you for listening, and if you like what you hear, please leave a rating and review so that others can tune in as well.